My guest today is Monica Lent. Monica is a software engineer and former engineering manager who has been coding since the age of 10. Her main focus now is Affiliate, a SaaS product which provides a unified dashboard and content analytics for affiliates. Monica also writes a weekly newsletter called Blogging for Devs, which teaches developers about blogging and SEO. Monica, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I am stoked to be here. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you here. And uh, you, you have a lot of really cool things going on in your world, which you just told me before we started recording occupies more than 100% of your time. So I'm excited to to learn uh, how these things uh, sit, how you have you know time for all these things. Um, so let's, let's get into it. Why don't you tell me about kind of your story going from uh, being an engineering manager to now working on your own things? How did uh, how did that all take place? Sure. So yeah, I I started in Berlin at a tech company called SumUp um, about now it's I guess six years ago or seven years ago, um, and yeah I started there as a senior front end engineer and kind of moved up the ranks a little bit but I I managed to kind of get in early so it was easier to move into a position of management compared to a more established company um, and I really liked working there I was there as it grew from eighty to over 1500 people now i think they're over 2000 it's it's wow. pretty wild um but at the same time uh, i kind of always like made this i i made a goal for myself that by the time i turned 30 i wouldn't have a boss anymore like that, that was <laughs> that was just something that i told myself because i don't know maybe it's because i'm an older child or because i just have that rebellious streak i'm sure my parents could <laughs> tell you more about that uh, but i always thought okay i want to do my own thing i want to be in total control of my time um and ironically uh, once you have customers you are in less control of your time yeah. than you might think <laughs> um but yeah so what what happened more or less is that i got dangerously close to my 30 year old deadline. Um, and I had to do it. <laughs> so I quit. Uh, I had to go through like a pretty long visa process, uh, because I live in mm. Germany as, a, as an American. So had to get some permission, uh, to kind of change my employment setup. But yeah, in, in short, uh, it was not that I didn't necessarily like my job, but that it was kind of time for something new after spending five years or so at the same company. Cool. That's really cool. So you made the jump. And this is, um, it's an interesting approach that you took because you'll hear what, what I find to be sort of conflicting advice. Like some people say, do your side project as you're working your day job, do it in the evenings and weekends. And then only once you have the revenue to kind of make that transition, then do it. And then I hear others say like, uh, just take the jump, work on your thing, quit your job, etc. Um, did you kind of go back and forth between those two approaches as you were going into it? Uh, would you do anything, do anything differently now? Um, maybe change the approach or, or are you happy with, uh, with how you did it? Yeah, so I did not have my first SaaS customer before quitting, um, mm -hmm. but had an initial set of like beta users. So I was pretty confident at least some of them would convert, but I t went through the process of trying to get out of my get out of my job and get the the visa that I needed like long before that. Um, gotcha. So ultimately, I didn't have proper revenue from my project at the time. But what made it a lot easier for me to quit was that I had a travel blog which generated ad and affiliate revenue. Uh, every month. So unfortunately, it was right before the pandemic. <laughs> so it used to generate revenue and then it kind of stopped. 
Um, but until that point, I was actually doing really well from a financial perspective. Uh, and that kind of all changed in 2020. Uh, so right. I went from having the cushion to not having it anymore. Um, but I did save a fair amount of money before I left. So I knew, okay, if I, if I'm not able to make this work, I have, I have money. And the worst case scenario is you just fall back to a developer job. Like mm. it's the most comfortable position that you could possibly be in. So I don't know. I was just confident that somehow I would make it work. And despite nice. a lot of struggles, ultimately, I guess it did. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really cool to hear. Um, and, and that, uh, touching on the point of having the travel blog, and I think you mentioned that you did like affiliate sales perhaps through there. Uh, maybe that's what led you, I, I would assume, to to your product, which is a, a, film, a Filmate. Um, is that the story? Uh, did you kind of get into your SaaS product because of the experience that you had with your travel blog? Or how did that come about? Yeah, exactly. So I was a member of a lot of blogging Facebook groups. And being one of the only bloggers that was also a developer, you know, I often found myself kind of like helping people with little JavaScript snippets or like trying to fix their CSS. Um, and I kind of realized through my own site and as I was setting up my own kind of tracking and attribution for where my sales were coming from, you know, which pieces of content were driving the most commissions. Um, I, yeah, I realized that a lot of people would benefit from this. Um, and yeah, so our first like main set of customers uh, were all people that I knew through Facebook groups. Um, nice. And that was kind of how we, yeah, how we got initial people in the door uh, before having, you know, any kind of content or anything that really looked public facing or professional in any way. Uh, those people just came through a forum posted in Facebook groups uh, and that's how we got started. Cool, excellent. And so, why don't we give the pitch actually for Affiliate? Like, what's the? Uh, it's uh, so it's uh, all your affiliate data in one dashboard is is the H one on your site. Um, give me some more detail there. What uh, what does it give you if you're a customer that signs up for Affiliate? What do you what can you expect there? Sure. So there are a couple of main main value pillars. Uh, the first one is unifying all the data. So if you are an affiliate publisher, you may have a lot of different relationships whether those are in different networks or direct programs. And logging into all of those um, and kind of staying on top of them can be not only time consuming, but you kind of forget about some of them uh, just because uh, you're spread across so many. We have people, or I've talked to people who have over a hundred different programs that they're in. Um, hmm. And then on the other hand, you have the attribution problem. So a lot of affiliate networks have a way for you to kind of attach these kind of campaign IDs to each sale. But what happens a lot is that people have massive websites, you know, maybe they're getting millions of page views a month, but they never set up this tracking themselves at the mm. beginning. So now they have thousands of pages, you know, tens of thousands of links, and none of them have attached that kind of tracking data that would just tell them which piece of content drove the sale. Um, right. And so our tool can basically attach that data for you. Uh, and it, we use, since this is a, a podcast for developers, I'll say like, you know, we use uh, BigQuery as like our event cool. storage. So this allows us to like really enrich that tracking data. And we can do some pretty cool stuff like uh, showing heat maps that actually visualize conversions for you. Mm -hmm. um, so when people want to run tests uh, and see what's converting, uh, they can do so in a really visual way. 
Um, so these kind of like two parts of aggregation and attribution are some of the, the things that people come to us for. Um, and yeah, you want to use that cool. to grow their revenue. Excellent. Well, that's really cool. It looks uh, the, the site looks great. I'm excited to look into the details a bit more. Um, I, I think you told me offline that it's in a, a growth phase right now. Like you're you're, you're ramping up uh, customers that are are in the SaaS and and really kind of starting to grow it. What's uh what are you focusing on for growth? Like what kinds of um, I guess tactics are you are you going after for for growing the thing? Are you doing like um, marketing through? Because I know this is a subject that you touch on is is blogging. Are you, are you marketing through SEO through blogging that way? Are you hitting any other areas that people might not expect? Yeah, so one of the things that was a bit of a surprise to me when I started with Affilimate is actually how much more difficult it was to get organic traffic to the site compared to other websites that I've run. And the reason being, when you are in the affiliate marketing space, you are competing with, you know, the most savvy bloggers, the, you know, the ones who have been doing this for a really long time. So it's like a completely different competitive landscape than what I was used to in travel. Um, so I would say that only now, uh, you know, almost like I would say a year and a half since I started writing some content for this blog, is it really starting to pay off in terms mm. of organic leads um, and not just finding people who are kind of, let's say, smaller scale publishers. So you know, people under 100,000 page views a month, but, uh, you know, finally reaching also larger publishers uh, who are mm. doing much bigger volumes. Um, and of course, we can charge them a lot more money for the service. So that's been good. Um, and I actually just hired a, a content uh, agency. I'm not sure exactly how they would describe themselves to help me scale up so I can produce more content uh, that features cool. the product. Um, and yeah, that's going well. And also I would say word of mouth. Uh, so we know like some of the most successful people in terms of conversions comes from existing customers mentioning yeah. us. We have an affiliate program, obviously. Um, but most of our users are not, they don't blog about blogging. So they mm -hmm. don't necessarily have the target audience of people who would join our, join our platform. But, right. you know, they do all communicate in these Facebook groups. And so when someone asks a question, it's not uncommon for one of our members to kind of pop in and say, oh, you know, you can actually solve that with this tool. And they may or may not use an affiliate link. They'll maybe even just mention the product. And then most people find us through brand searches. So they're mm -hmm. looking for the name of our product. And this is by and far the most common way that people end up on our on our site compared to all the other terms. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that it's an interesting uh, sort of uh, conundrum, right? Because I, I suppose the the population of meta bloggers, those who blog about blogging, is probably not huge. Probably not uh, not that substantial. Although I'm sure there are those around. Um, and that would be if that was a large audience, though, or if that was a large market. I, I assume that would be like one of the prime spots to go to, uh, towards in terms of content. But uh, but I guess hitting some of it as you can is is great. Um, I wonder about like what what are you thinking? about for other um, avenues to, to get your name out there. Like one thing that comes to mind that I've seen that works well for SaaS products is like integrations of various sorts. And I don't know if your product in particular would, uh, you know, would um, necessarily be set up where integrations are, are a prime focus, but like I can even imagine something where you can like integrate with ConvertKit or something like that, for example, as being something that people would, uh, as a way people would be able to find out about it because ConvertKit has such a, a large name now. Any any thoughts around like uh, integrations or something as being a way to uh, do, you know, to serve your, your customers, but also do marketing for yourself? 
Definitely. So in our space, um, integrations are one of the main features, in fact, because we are aggregating data. So in order to do that, we have to integrate with a bunch of places, uh, which has its pros and cons. You know, as a developer, anytime you have to work with a third-party API, yeah. uh, you know, it's <laughs> some are easy, some are hard, some are very painful. Um, and many of these platforms have been around for a really, really long time. Um, yep. The hard part, I think, about integrations, at least for us, is that, you know, we're kind of um, focusing on the the B to C of this mm. space. So most of the time when you have an affiliate network, they are, you know, they're really focused on the advertisers because that's where the bulk of their in revenue comes from. Um, right. So they are much less focused usually on supporting publishers. Um, but uh, we've definitely like started some great relationships thanks to doing integrations. And hopefully at some point we'll be able to do some more co-marketing or webinars or something along those mm. lines to be able to reach those publishers. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one avenue uh, that we are thinking about. Um, it just cool. kind of depends on whether or not the network is really focused on publishers or not. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, what would you say uh, for people who are kind of like at uh, the early stages, the uh, conceptualization of, of coming up with, you know, a SaaS product that they want to go and build, or maybe if they are, you know, partway through building it and they're really starting to think about the marketing aspect of it and, and how to um, to make people aware of it, uh, given your experience, like what would you recommend? What are the, some of the top things you would tell people who are kind of at a stage uh, uh, prior to where you are at now? So they're thinking about marketing completely from scratch and how to acquire users for their SaaS product. Yeah, let's say that, yeah. Um, well, I would say that, I mean, this is the most generic advice, but it's accurate, uh, is that you have to find out where are these users. Um, mm. And the hard part is that sometimes they are not looking for solutions in Google. They might be looking for solutions on Reddit. They might be looking in Facebook groups. So the question is, where do these people kind of congregate so that you can... Mm reach them, study them, uh, maybe even set up some customer development interviews. Um, so you had to find out ultimately where they are. But for me, my main strength and what I know best is SEO and writing content. Um, yeah. And so doing keyword research and kind of figuring out what are the terms that my target customer is searching for, what kind of problems do they have, especially if those things are, they might appear to be indirect. So maybe they're less competitive than the kind of terms my competitors are already targeting. Um, mm -hmm. If you can find those t those types of kind of indirect terms, uh, these can be a real gold mine. Um, but it's kind of, it depends on the space that you're in. Um, but yeah, finding out what people are searching for would have been a really big help for us um, because a lot of people mm -hmm. for our SaaS products, they're not really problem or solution aware because they don't know that it's technically possible to do a lot of the stuff that we're doing, which makes organic right. acquisition difficult. Um, so it depends also if people are aware of that or if you have to reach them where they're not aware that you have yeah. something, in which case, you know, whether it's ads or going through an affiliate program or going through these communities, these are all ways to, to reach people. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that's an interesting conundrum is like, how many times have, uh, have I been sitting there trying to think of the search term to put into Google to solve the coding problem that I'm having? Where And I can't think of like a way to describe the issue that I'm having. So if people aren't even aware that they can Google for, for something that uh, like your product that solves the problems that they don't know they have, you know, that, that certainly, I guess, would be challenging. And uh, that it makes me interested in this this idea of like going to other places to find people's, find kind of people uh, who have those issues that your your product solves, but maybe they, they aren't aware to ask for it, places like Facebook. Um, do you have any tips about like, if you're going to a place like Facebook to kind of look for these people, uh, you're going spelunking for for uh, for people who who may uh, may be able to benefit from your product. Um, any any tips that you could offer that uh, you've you've come to know from your time doing that? Um, anything that you'd recommend people focus on? Ways to search stuff like that? Absolutely. Uh, so the number one thing that I would recommend for people who are looking to acquire users through Facebook groups and communities is. One, you want to make sure you're not going to get kicked out by promoting your product. So you don't want to just go in there and be like, hey, I have this thing, first post, check out my product. <laughs> and it will, you know, it's surprising how many people just kind of lack this understanding of like basic decorum of like entering a new right. community. Um, and the other thing it can be really helpful is to get in touch with the admin. Um, so asking first, for example, we did a free beta, which we then converted to paid partway through after we wanted to test, like, will people pay for this thing? Um, and I communicated with the admin during that time, like, hey, would it be possible for us to, you know, we're building this product. This is the problem we're trying to solve. Uh, would it be cool if I posted this and got some people in the in the group uh, to sign up? And then when we decided mm -hmm. to switch it to paid, you know, I asked her, you know, would you like payments? Like, you know, because some some groups they'll allow you to advertise if you pay for it. So you had to just okay. see what are the what are the different rules of that group. And then more or less, uh, you can get a lot of content ideas from people in that group. So hmm. they ask the same kind of questions over and over. You can, I mean, if you're quick about it, you can even just write a blog post right then that answers hmm. that question. Um, and you don't necessarily have to post it as the first response. You know, if they reply to you with a follow-up question, you can say, hey, this is something more in-depth that I've written on this topic. Um, right. But I find that as long as you are, you know, providing something that's genuinely valuable, people are pretty open to external links on Facebook. Uh, okay. Just as long as you don't come across as spammy and kind of get the vibes of the group, because some groups have real problems with self-promotion and then yeah, it's sure. not enjoyable for anyone. But... Like being in touch with the admin, you know, respecting the norms uh, and being helpful and using that group to kind of fuel content ideas. Those are things that all have worked pretty well for me. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I, I've been surprised to hear about how uh, how active some of these Facebook groups are. Being someone who doesn't really touch Facebook much anymore, um, just being, you know, focused on Twitter mainly, uh, I forget there's this whole world over there. And I've been surprised to learn that, like, there are, like, thousands and thousands and thousands of people in these groups that are just always uh, sharing content and sharing info with one another. And it sounds like it's a thriving ecosystem, really, when it comes down to it. Would you agree? Yeah, totally. I mean, these groups are massive and for better or worse, Facebook has figured out, you know, optimal notifications, making sure that you get a follow up to, you know, if you post something, someone else replies, you'll get a notification. So they're really optimizing around engagement and, 
you know, you can kind of benefit from that. If you go into an existing thread that has a lot of replies and you say, oh, I have a blog post that answers all of these questions, well, then everyone else who's already replied will also get a notification about that. Yep. So sometimes that can be really valuable for people wanting to kind of promote their stuff indirectly. Have you seen much on Facebook groups for like uh, developer focused communities or is that world like for me, I guess that whole world is on Twitter <laughs> to a certain extent, maybe LinkedIn, but Facebook do doesn't really strike me as a place where like developers congregate and, and chat, you know, chat about development stuff. Um, but I don't know. What have you seen? Any kind of like developer communities that are worth checking out? I, I'm thinking mainly for the case of someone's thinking about working on like uh, products or tools or whatever that are developer focused, you know? Yeah. So. I would say that the groups that I'm in, um, which maybe are relevant for people listening to this podcast, uh, they are, they're mostly targeting marketers. Um, but mm -hmm. as a lot of developers, you know, we need all the marketing like input that we can get. So there are some groups like SaaS growth hacks, uh, which is pretty good. Um, and I think there's also a SaaS marketing group. So I would check either of those out. But in general, like in terms of, of developer groups, what I've noticed is it depends a lot on the country. So for mm. instance, I used to work with uh, teams in Brazil and Bulgaria. And okay. those uh, those countries, they're just not as big on Twitter, but they do have pretty big um, and active Facebook groups around software development. Mm. So I'm not sure if it's just, you know, not as big in US, Canada, or, or other English speaking uh, countries, but for some of them, mm. you know, they're like basically absent from Twitter and then very prominent. Uh, big groups on on Facebook instead. Hmm. That's really interesting. Well, why don't we switch gears to talk about your another thing that um, you mentioned earlier that that you focus on a lot, which is blogging, SEO, um, and you you've got uh, uh, a lot of experience there. And you have a product where you teach developers about it. So blogging for devs is uh, is your product and. Um, I guess maybe where, where we could start is uh, let's let's maybe chat about like what blogging for devs is like what does it uh, teach people what are you uh, kind of offering with uh, with that product? Sure. So it is a free seven day email course, um, and it was kind of born out of like a response to the pandemic and its kind of effect on my income. I was like, okay, how can I use the existing audience that I had on Twitter to? just create something that would have a bit of momentum. I had no plans or ideas about how to monetize it in the beginning. Um, but it's just a seven day course that kind of teaches you step-by-step step how to create an optimized blog post. So starting from, you know, building your idea engine or setting up your website technically so that it's, you know, it's good from a technical SEO standpoint. Mm. And then talking about things like selecting topics, crafting good headlines, writing online and distribution. And so okay. it kind of breaks those things down. Um, and yeah, it like launching it did much better than I than I expected. In under two weeks, it had over 1,200 people subscribe. Um, nice. And this kind of, you know, signaled to me, which I was not confident about at all in the beginning, that developers are really interested in writing blog posts that other people mm. want to read, um, which seems like basic, you know, human instinct, but it was never kind of clear to me that they would you know, that it would resonate so well with them. But yeah, and now we are, I don't know, something like 10, 10 months in and something like, I don't know, 6,500 subscribers or so in, wow. in that range. So yeah, it keeps, it keeps growing. 
Excellent. Very cool. And so um, that's, uh, you know, some some good stuff to chat about is like the the whole blogging. Uh, if you're a developer and you want to get into blogging, um, you know, I've been blogging as a developer for a number of years and I, I've picked up various like tidbits along the way of how to craft things such that, you know, the blog is readable, um, that it, you know, provides the value that you're hoping it would. And also how to, you know, do things that are good for SEO and stuff like that. I've picked these things up as I've gone. But um, if you were to maybe give like, what are your, I guess, your top tips? Like if someone's getting um, getting ready to, to start blogging as a developer, um, what should they focus on first, I guess? I mean, we, we might say like quality content uh, for sure, but uh, anything kind of uh, more in detail than that, anything you'd recommend that people kind of focus on? Yeah, well, there are a lot of things. I think it kind of depends on what what's the kind of content that you want to write and how do you want to acquire readers for your blog? Um, so the thing that, like kind of the main pitch, I would say, of blogging for devs uh, is that the headline says something like, you don't have to be famous on Twitter to grow your blog. Um, mm -hmm. And this is something that really resonates with me personally, um, because I, yeah, I started a, a blog in the travel space, never focused on necessarily trying to build a huge social presence for it, but it still became incredibly popular. You know, I had a lot of um, a lot of emails with readers, but I wasn't doing social media. I was doing SEO. Mm. And for me, the thing that you know developers maybe miss about SEO is that it's such a systematic way to actually grow traffic to a project. Mm. So I think when people start from that kind of angle of like, okay, how can I validate that people are interested in my idea by doing a little bit of keyword research? Um, mm. You know, how can I find those related topics so I know that I'm going to be writing a complete post? Um, so I always begin in the research phase and I try to like encourage other people to do that too. But I think it's also hard when you're just getting started because you don't know like what numbers are good or bad. Like, is this going right. to be too hard? And sometimes people target keywords that are like, you know, there's like no hope that they will be able to rank right. for it. Um, and so, yeah, but I, I try to think about it like in terms of content planning, it's kind of like clusters of content around similar topics so that you can slowly but surely, you know, attract the kind of people who are gonna like what you're, what you're writing about. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because a lot of developers tell me, I, you know, I kind of write about whatever comes to my mind, uh, <laughs> which is fine, like if you want to, I don't know, write privately, I think. But mm -hmm. if you're looking to, you know, kind of build up some kind of a brand where you're bringing people, attracting them to you, they kind of have to know what to expect. Um, mm -hmm. And going at it from kind of like this random, I woke up today and this was what I felt like writing. Um, it can work, uh, but I think for most people, you have to either be like, have a really strong personality or be really funny. Mm. You know, you have to have that edge in some other way. Um, and unless you have that, it can be hard to to kind of like grow an audience on, I just wrote whatever I felt like this morning. Um, right. Instead, it, it pays to be a little bit more systematic. So yeah. I'm not sure if that's like as as precise, um, but yeah, I, I would kind of go at it from that angle and you can do it in a very, in a very systematic way if you kind of start with a bit of a plan at the beginning. Nice, excellent. Yeah, the SEO topic is interesting. Like it's, um, 
I guess you'd expect, I speak for myself, I suppose, you'd expect that people would uh, understand that SEO is like, a, if you're a developer, that you'd understand that it's a system that, it, you know, it takes time to propagate, etc. But I always, I, I think people get a little bit dejected when they find that, you know, they're not ranking uh, right away for, for things. And, um, you know, it comes down to the fact that they just need to put more time into it. Uh, essentially, more time in reps is what I, what I would think. Um, you know, building up that domain authority and building up the uh, the kind of being able to rank at all is is a potentially a lengthy process. Um, what do you recommend to people who might come to you and say, you know what, SEO wise, I can see that uh, blogging on somewhere like Medium.com is going to be the far better bet because they're going to help me to rank uh, for my post. Um, I'm just going to do my blogging on Medium. Do you kind of support that uh, that angle, I suppose, or do you say no? It should be on your own domain. You should own your content, etc. Do you have any thoughts on that uh, that split? Yeah, I'm pretty hardcore about domain ownership. <laughs> so I definitely do not, I actively discourage people from posting on platforms that they don't own, at least when it comes to somewhere that you can't syndicate, where you can set mm. the canonical URL back to the back to your own domain. Um, and it's like you said, like a lot of times it's easy to, to think, well, I just want to get these quick results. And so yeah. maybe if I blog somewhere else or like I blog on dev and that's just where I'm going to leave my stuff, you know, I'm going to get faster results that way. But it's really, in my opinion, blogging is really about a long-term investment. Uh, so you yeah. can't expect to see results immediately. Um, so we are doing a, an accelerator group in the accompanying community for blogging for devs right now. And someone asked me, you know, my post, it's been two weeks and my post isn't ranking yet. Um, and I'm like, you know, I had a post, it took me over a year for it to rank. And now it's been number one for over six months. So like, hmm. sometimes you just write something and you have to ultimately feel confident. Like, I know this is better than anything else out there. And if I, you know, trust the system to some degree, uh, it will, you know, it will bubble up to the top. Um, hmm. And... Yeah, so you don't really get the long-term benefit from it if you do happen to, for example, go viral and then you're ranking on Hacker News or wherever it is, um, and then you like get all those backlinks, but then you're sending them to you know somewhere like Medium, which doesn't right. uh, you know it's it's not as good as if you had it directly on your website and you could really benefit from that. So it's kind of like all about this long-term play and like delayed gratification, I think. Like, can mm -hmm. I write something and expect I'm not going to see an ROI on this for several months, maybe even longer mm -hmm. if I'm just getting started? Um, but it's worth it when you build up a property that, mm -hmm. you know, you can publish something and then feel confident it's going to it's gonna rise to the top. Yeah, excellent. That's really cool. Um, wh what about some like, uh, I guess, tips for helping yourself out with SEO, um, things that people might not, you know, think about. Like I, I've, over the years, I've come to know certain things like, you know, structured content on your page is really key for SEO. <clears throat> um, uh, things like having only one H1, you know, some of these technical things like uh, the way that your your page is, is laid out, et cetera. Um, anything people should be paying mind to that way? Any kind of these kind of like, any of this minutia that, that becomes important when people want to start ranking? I think, Probably one of the most important things that people forget is that, you know, it is an algorithm that is trying to figure out what you're talking about. And if you are very vague or use terms like it or that, instead of just spelling mm. out what you're talking about, you're giving the machine, you know, less context to work with. So mm, a lot of times 
people, for example, don't write descriptive subheadings. So like you were talking about the H1, it's a great place for your main, the main keyword that you're targeting, but your H2s and your H3s are also great places for, for keywords, but you have to be descriptive. Uh, and I think a lot of people end up writing these kind of like clever subheadings that are mm. just, you know, a couple of words or it's like, and so it began, you know, they will just write something totally generic. But instead, I try to encourage people to think about those subheadings like, you know, a summary or descriptor mm. of the content that's right below. Um, and there are just so many ways that you can give context to search engines about what you're writing about and just make it easy for them to understand. Um, and the other thing I would add is just internal links. So many people don't mm. internally link between their articles. But those links are also a great opportunity to describe the content behind the link. Um, and it's a great way to kind of like build up, uh, build up context around a piece of content uh, mm -hmm. without necessarily having to do a ton of getting external links to your website, uh, which is very time consuming and you don't always have control over the outcome. So I think those two things, just being descriptive and using internal links will already help people a lot, especially if they have existing content that they're not doing that very well with. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, those are those are great tips. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, it's interesting because like the the desire to be kind of like clever with language can often impede your ability to really give the search engine what it wants. And one, th one of the things that I learned um, years ago was, um, and I think this had some effect, back when I was working at Auth0 uh, on the content team there, uh, we would be looking at these SEO tactics all the time. And, and one of the things um, that we, we came across is if we put the basically the target keyword in the very first spot in the H1 followed by a colon and then whatever it is that we want to say that was like I think we found out that that was like a a, a key tactic to like helping our, ourselves rank uh, I don't have any good data to support that but is that something that you'd recommend people do it's like you know keyword that you're looking for colon and then your title is that uh, or, or is that like uh, trip up the search engine in, in any way so there have definitely been some studies, uh, like reputable studies, I would say, uh, which demonstrate that having the keyword earlier in the title has some correlation to to ranking. Um, mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, you just have to make it semantic. And ultimately, the, the question that we all have to ask ourselves is, when I create the headline for my article, you know, how is it going to look on that, you know, that page in Google where you have those 10 results, um, what's going to make people click mine instead of all the other ones? Uh, right. Not just the position, but how do you stand out on that page? Um, and one of the ways you can definitely do that is if you're using that exact keyword, maybe someone sees that and thinks, okay, you're using exactly what I'm searching for. And so that's mm. a strong indicator to me that I'm going to find the answer to my problem behind sure. this link. Um, but... Yeah, ultimately, I've seen this technique used a lot. I think it works pretty well. The only problem is if everyone is doing it, you might kind right. of blend into the results as opposed to standing out. And so I think yeah. that's the kind of question to, to kind of ask yourself is, how do I get those yeah. clicks? That's an interesting uh, thing to think about is like, it's not, at the end of the day, it's not just getting the search engine, getting Google to put you at the top of the front page. It's also, how do you draw people's eye to your specific title, right? That's something that I, that I haven't thought about a whole lot. Um, 
anything that works well there, like anything that is aside. So let's say you're, you've managed to get yourself up to the top of Google. Um, anything that you've found that works well to like draw people's attention to your specific article? So there are two that like no work notoriously well, but can come across as a little bit spammy. Uh, okay. So I put that disclaimer there. Uh, one of them is all caps. So obviously okay, this, it. it draws the eye. Um, and I definitely have some like competitors from an SEO standpoint that like they put before their title of their post, must read, and, like all, yeah. all caps. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my goodness, it looks so cheesy. But at the same time, you know, it totally stands out. Um, yeah. And another big one is just putting the date. So you would say right. the best blah in 2021. Um, mm -hmm. Because for a lot of queries, people are looking for the most up-to-date information. Yeah. And uh, if you can say, oh, this is, I promise you that when you come on this page, you know, it's going to be up-to-date. Unfortunately, because this works so well, many people just update these dates and don't update the articles behind mm. them. Uh, so that's also something to kind of keep in mind is uh, if you're going to use this tactic, then ideally you'd also be updating those posts at least annually um, <laughs> yeah. for the latest and greatest information. Uh, but those are like, I would say, two quick wins. Um, cool. Again, depending how many of your competitors are already doing that and whether it's going to give you an edge or not. Right. What about uh, the the old trope? Eight ways to be happy. You won't believe number seven. Is that uh, <laughs> is that something we should still be using these days? Or I think the the important thing to kind of keep in mind is that uh, Google does care about how quickly the person bounces, or hmm. uh, as we now say, dwell time. How long does the person stay dwell on time. the page? Um, and if the person is kind of like misled, so they end up on your page, it's totally not answering their question or it's low quality or maybe it's full of ads and the page is moving everywhere, um, then they're more likely to bounce. So hmm. you got that click, but what did it really do for you? Um, yep. And at the end of the day, there are a lot more important KPIs than just click-throughs on, right. on your links right in, in Google. So... I think it's it's important not to be too clickbaity in the sense that if you mislead people, they are not going to stay on your page and it can hurt your ranking. But I would also say like one thing I think developers kind of get tripped up on, um, and this is especially true I think amongst like hacker news crowd or maybe even a bit on Twitter, is just because a title is interesting doesn't mean that it's clickbait, right? Mm -hmm. So. If you actually fulfill the user's expectation and it's genuinely interesting, then it's it's okay. Um, you know, it becomes clickbait when it's when it's misleading um, yeah. and and leads you to that point of like disappointment after you have clicked sure. through. Um, so finding that balance is between interesting and clickbait uh, is mm. a never-ending pursuit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, well, that's you mentioned something that. Um, made me think about something uh, that I've been focusing on more these days is like uh, taking care of layout shift within a page. Um, you know, this happens if like you load up something well. So let's say your, your page loads and then in the background you're loading something up, <clears throat> excuse me, you're loading something else up and then you pop it onto the page when it's there uh, or whatever. And your whole like uh, content area shifts down or shifts to the side or something like that. And like in some of the tools that you can audit your site with to see how your performance is doing and how SEO is like layout shift will be something that's noted as like a, a detriment to SEO. Um, how important is layout shift? I never, I, I never really thought about it too much before, but is it a, is it a big factor these days? 
So there is an upcoming update. I don't know, I don't remember if we have a specific date yet. Uh, this is the core web vitals update. Um, and these are a couple of main metrics, uh, cumulative layout shift being one of them uh, that mm. is expected to have an impact. Um, I think the important thing that like people have to remember is that there are yeah, hundreds of ranking factors. And so usually what happens with these kind of things is that performance or these kind of like usability metrics tend to really penalize very, very bad websites as opposed mm. to, you know, proportionally helping websites that are just doing that so much better. So you can right. have like a website that has mediocre content, maybe it has like perfect, you know, the layout doesn't shift and it's all perfect from a technical <laughs> SEO standpoint, doesn't mean it's going to rank better if the content isn't as good, usually. Of course, there are many, many factors that go into it. Um, but yeah, that's going to be pretty interesting. I think a lot of people are kind of freaked out <laughs> about this upcoming update. Um, and I think they also relaxed the measures a little bit as well, uh, what you need to do to stay in kind of like the good graces. So we're going to see. That is the, the game with Google. You never know if you're going to wake up in the morning and have a dramatically <laughs> different amount of amount of traffic to your website. So keeps things spicy, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, totally interesting. Well, why don't we chat about the the business side of blogging for devs? Um, you know, it's you told me offline that it's it's been very good since your launch in in November. Um, what uh, I guess what has aside from like the because you mentioned the the influx of people that are interested in this topic was was quite surprising. Uh, anything else that you found sort of surprising since launching that uh, you wouldn't wouldn't have really thought about uh, prior to or um, I guess and also how has the launch gone? Maybe give us a little bit of uh, the story with the launch. Sure. So yeah, to be clear, I launched the newsletter in May of last year. Um, and then I launched a free but private and kind of invite only community. Um, and then in November was when I launched the paid version of that. Um, so that I did that right before the US elections. I was like, YOLO, we're going to see what happens here. <laughs> um, and it did, it did better than I expected. Um, so in the first week, uh, it did 5K in revenue. Um, nice. And I think just within the last, I don't know how long, last couple of weeks, uh, we broke 20K in lifetime revenue. So cool. that's been pretty, yeah, pretty exciting. Um, and I think some of the, the main learnings from that was one, building the wait list. So hmm. I didn't just launch it kind of out of the blue. And even though I had an email list, I still had an additional wait list. Um, mm. And in the first week, 23, I think, percent of people converted from the waitlist. So it went very well from like a launch standpoint. Um, nice. And yeah, I also had like a recap email that ended up on Hacker News, which also took us over 100 members, even though Hacker News hated my post. Didn't matter because it still made it to like number three. So nice. <laughs> it ended up with a fair <laughs> amount of traffic. Um, but yeah, I think the, the biggest revelation for me of that first batch was that even though I have like a decent number of like Twitter followers, most people who subscribe to become members of the community didn't follow me on Twitter. So they, mm. on, they only heard about me through the wait list or the newsletter. Um, and I think that's sometimes contradictory to what you hear from a lot of, yeah. you know, creators, you know, it's very much focused on build a Twitter audience. Um, but for me, what worked really well was forming personal connections with people over email. Mm -hmm. So anytime yep. someone subscribes to my newsletter, you know, there are questions at the end of the emails and I reply to everybody. 
Um, and sometimes that's a little bit crazy. Uh, for example, I launched on, on Product Hunt uh, and made it to number one product of the day. And this led to hundreds nice. of emails in my inbox. Uh, so that, that took a while to get through. But I think those personal connections are what led a lot of people to join because they yeah. knew, you know, there is a human being here uh, and you will get the kind of like support that you're looking for. And also, you know, this isn't just like a get rich quick kind of scheme. You know, it's not yeah. like something like a one off thing. This is meant to be like a long term kind of relationship. And yeah, yeah I think. I think that resonates with with some people. Um, so yep. we passed like 300, 300 uh, active members recently. So mm -hmm. pretty exciting, and two hundred of those Absolutely. are paid. Then, so very good. Yeah. Well, congrats on that. That's that's awesome. Yeah, it is interesting the this whole dichotomy between like the uh, email marketing being your your primary driver versus something like Twitter. And you'll you'll see on Twitter people like Daniel Vasallo, who's been on this podcast. You'll say like, you know, focus on Twitter. That's what I did. I you know grew my Twitter audience, and it's it's paid off uh, quite quite well. I don't even know if he does like a mailing list. Maybe he does, but but in the stuff that he'll put out there, he'll he'll definitely say like the the primary uh, marketing. Uh, avenue for me has been Twitter, and, and and this is becoming more and more popular as I'm seeing it. Um, but I've had that same experience with my products. Is like people on Twitter. Maybe you'll get some. You'll get some to come in from your announcements on Twitter, etc. Um, but but it is the email list that is like the primary kind of driver. That's been my experience too. And I think that goes back to a lot of the uh, the elements of you know the the nature of an email list, right? It's it's in somebody's kind of personal space. If, if they're subscribed to your list and they're actually wanting to read your stuff, um, you know that you've got a bit more of a, I guess, what, do you, what would you say? A deeper digital relationship with them than you would on, on, on Twitter. Um, and I think, you know, building that trust and building reciprocity through, through email is much, um, you're much more capable of doing it through email than you would would via Twitter, I think. Any other spots where, where marketing took place um, for that? Like uh, going back to Facebook, uh, would, would Facebook be be a place for this to be marketed or, or not so much? Yeah, I think not so much for the reasons we talked about before, that um, at least the community, everything in there is in English. Um, and so there are not that many, uh, at least that I'm aware of, uh, tech communities on Facebook that maybe are that that target market. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, one thing to add about Twitter is that I do primarily grow my email list through Twitter. Um, mm. So that converts really well. So I have something like a like 30 plus percent conversion rate from Twitter when they land on my on the landing page for the email list. Okay. So Twitter is definitely a huge part. Um, but one of my main like focuses uh, has been diversifying away from Twitter to organic traffic. Um, yeah. But yeah, in terms of other avenues, honestly, Twitter has worked so well that it's almost mm -hmm. difficult because you know if you imagine even the organic traffic, a lot of people are Googling, again, it's brand search. So they've already heard about uh, blogging for devs from somewhere else and now they're Googling for it. So they're coming in yeah. with like an amount of context that's not the same as a lot of other search terms that they might be looking for and discovering my website with. So then I'm, you know, it's like, yes, this is the organic opt-in rate, but it's a little bit tainted by the fact that it is all brand search. Not all hmm. brand search, but a significant uh, amount is brand search. So honestly, I, I'm mostly sticking to, to Twitter there, hoping hmm. to diversify. 
Um, but we do have a lot of overlap, for instance, with the indie hackers community. Um, mm -hmm. So it happens a fair bit. I would say that people show up and you might have seen them on indie, indie hackers before um, because a lot of people, I think, want to build either audience-driven products um, or they just know, okay, blogging is something that is going to help me in the long term. So mm -hmm. if I get started now, uh, it's going to pay off. So those are the two the two areas. But I would say Twitter growing to the going to the email list. They just don't have to follow me on Twitter, which is totally fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if they end up on the email list, even better. Um, so yeah, that's what's worked for me. Cool, excellent. Well, we should probably start uh, wrapping up pretty soon. But maybe before we do, um, if there are people out there that are embarking upon doing their own course offering, people who want to create uh, whatever it is, a video course or you know a, a written book, whatever whatever the case might be, do you have anything uh, you'd recommend that people be sort of thinking about at the early stages of, of such a journey? I think the most important thing is having a clear understanding of who the audience is because when you when you create your landing page where people are actually going to end up there you want that they can read just a sentence or two and immediately have that feeling this is for people like me um mm. and i had a lot of feedback about that for blogging for devs that people you know saw the landing page and they were like okay you are exactly talking to me this these are the problems i have these are the things i don't want uh, you know, I don't want to be spammy or clickbaity, but I really want people to read my stuff and it feels like a dark art. And now, you know, hopefully I can kind of get this explained to me by someone who's also technical and not just going to use a bunch of marketing jargon. So I think speaking in the language of the people who you're trying to reach is really important. But a lot of times people start building products that they're not sure who the target customer is, um, which is okay. I think it can evolve over time and that's a lot of what has happened for my SaaS product as well, finding who is the best fit customer. But if you don't have an idea necessarily of who is the audience, what are their pains and struggles? Um, and yeah, what's the type of language they use to describe themselves? I think it's mm -hmm. going to be kind of hard. Um, and that's why the name of the course is like so boring. It's just like <laughs> blogging for devs. Like it's so obvious you know, this is for you. Um, and yeah, I think that that has, has helped a lot, uh, just being super clear about who it's for, who it's not for. Um, and then people realize, you know, makes sense for me to opt in. Excellent. Very cool. I think that's great advice. Um, we will link all of the stuff up in the show notes. So blogging for devs and Affiliate and all of your stuff um, that you would like to be found. Where else can uh, people look towards maybe Twitter? Uh, anywhere else that you want to link people to? Yeah. I mean, Twitter is definitely, I don't tweet that much, I think, because I'm very busy <laughs> running to running to products. Um, but I also do a, a monthly blog on monicalent.com. Um, so I recently started this year doing income reports. So it's a very nice. like transparent look at like, how much does it actually cost to run these businesses, which is very surprising for a lot of people? Um, and where is the money being made? You know, what's working, what's not? Um, so if people are, you know, interested in doing it themselves and kind of want to see what that looks like from not just a financial perspective, but also goals, what you can accomplish in a month, uh, could be interesting. 
Very cool. I will link all of that up in the show notes. Awesome. Well, Monica, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for coming on um, and uh, sharing your insight with uh, with the audience. So I'm sure people will be able to take away a lot of great tidbits from this. And uh, I will chat with you uh, on Twitter or elsewhere. Sounds great. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you so much for tuning into the Entrepreneurial Coder podcast today. This has been episode 44 with Monica Lent. You can find show notes with links to all the resources that Monica mentioned over at ecpodcast.io. There you can also subscribe. Go to ecpodcast.io slash subscribe. And if you can leave a rating and review, that would be awesome. Check us out on Twitter, twitter.com slash coderpodcast. 